Okay. Let's introduce himself first. Yes. Hi, I'm. Uh, my name's Charles Udi, and I'm a historian. Or uh, hi, my name's Charles Udi. I'm a historian. Uh, I've recently written a book called Labour in the Gulag, Russia and the Seduction of the British Left. Um, so, Charles, perhaps you could tell us to begin with, um, what was the genesis of this book? How did you start off with it? I began, in fact, writing a book about a group of Russian labour camps, Soviet labour camps, high up in the Russian Arctic. And I was just doing research for this. I was going to write the history of the camps right the way through and all the different groups of people who were sent there. And uh, I started to do some work on Soviet persecution in Western Europe and in Northwestern Europe. And then I came across this extraordinary story of how back in the early 1930s, we were importing millions of pounds worth of timber into the UK that was all cut by hundreds of thousands of slave laborers. And uh, the actual research that I came across was just an article in the Times which was showing Hansard and a number of conservative peers and bishops were complaining about this and saying the Labour government needed to do something and stop it and to my complete surprise I found that they were very very unwilling to do so and and I, that had set me on a trail of digging in and researching and finding out what actually happened in this this period when Labour were in government and then what happened before that that would mean that they would turn their back upon the suffering of hundreds of thousands of working class Ukrainians and Russians. Um, the, 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 the death toll was incredible in these camps. 20,000 children died in the first year. And Sturways managed to get back to the UK. They told the story of what conditions were in those camps. They were part of 1.8 million people who were all deported in cattle trucks to northwest Russia, to Siberia. And um, it was the most shocking story. I couldn't believe that uh, a party that was supposed to be the party to defend working class, oppressed, poor, had actually turned its back, seemingly, very deliberately, on their suffering. So then I spent a number of years looking through Foreign Office archives, cabinet records, contemporary accounts, reading left-wing press reports, a, a lot of Hansard to, to really dig into what this story was about. The results were horrifying and frankly unbelievable to most people, I think. And uh, that's what became the book. Just to get some of the dates, in, uh, which, which dates are we talking about here? We're talking about uh, a change of policy that took place in 1929 under Stalin at the same time as Britain's second Labour government came to power. So the second Labour government of 1929 to 31, headed by Ramsay MacDonald, came to power at almost the same time as Stalin started to repress the Ukrainian, mainly Ukrainian countryside, in order to collectivize, to take state control of peasant small holdings, small farms, uh, and nationalized land. It affected tens of millions of people. But the worst of those, as he saw them, or as the regime saw them, the worst of those people, 1.8 million or so, were actually taken off their farms and homes at just a few hours' notice, shipped off in cattle trucks, as I say. Uh, and uh, the, the very worst, 30,000, were shot before they ever got to the trains. What was the uh, Labour Party's view 
of the government of Russia up to that point? Labour had had a very interesting set of fluctuating reactions to the Russian Revolution. The government welcomed the Russian Revolution, welcomed revolutions that then spread all over Europe, overthrowing previous monarchies and previous governments. Uh, they saw the Bolsheviks, as they were originally called, and then the communists, as their political cousins, admittedly somewhat uncouth, but nonetheless their political cousins, and were solidly behind what was going on in Russia. They had talked for years about uh, the utopian socialist state, but it didn't really mean theory. In 1917, what happened in Russia was the, the realization of the dreams that many British socialists, Marxists, they were really virtually the same, uh, the dreams that they had, they were now seeing realized. They found that such an exciting prospect that they withheld any real critical judgment. There were times when they would certainly um, raise objections, but those were always when the Bolsheviks were repressing fellow socialists who were of different political parties. Um, and there were, there were times in the mid-20s when they issued muted protests, but those would really be completely ignored by the following year. You'd have a Labour conference where further solidarity with the Russian workers and Russian government would be expressed. And, and, and this was a sort of an ongoing pattern. By the time we get to the, 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 the point at which my book really deals at length, in the middle of the book, 1929, the people who were being repressed were, um, were priests, a lot of religious believers, and they were the people who were the opponents of the nationalization of the land. So their protests at that point became completely muted. But um, they carried on then in this state of denial right the way through to the late 1930s. Evidence, evidence had been coming out on a constant basis and had been ignored, had been excused. At one point, George Lansbury, the leader of the Labour Party, um, actually said it is not the business of any socialist to criticise what is going on in Soviet Russia. We are there to support them. It is not our business to be criticising them. And that was his response to people saying there is repression going on there, there is mass murder going on in there. Um, and then later on, with what Stalin was doing, the same thing happened. It became more and more difficult for them to hold on to this fixed view. Everything that's going on there is good. <laughs> and there were a few a few themes that came in there, which we'd even recognize today, for instance, with the left in Venezuela, where um, they would say that the violence that was going on was simply because of the imperialist encirclement of uh, Soviet Russia, the desire that the West had to break the regime, and therefore if the West hadn't been doing that, everything would be calm. There was an excuse that having a revolution was never going to be easy, but that the Russian authorities and their secret police were as uh, humane as could possibly be under the circumstances. And, and all these little excuses which kept on, and it, it really went right the way through until the late 1930s, and then by the late 1930s, finally it became too much. And um, a, a group of uh, people on the left of the Labour Party and in the ILP finally wrote a public letter to Stalin saying, end this regime of blood. But I mean, that was years after people had been saying, Labour, look at what you are actually endorsing 
and what you are denying. And when the first allegations came up about the um, about the 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 prison camps in the Northwest and the suffering there, two conservative MPs brought it up. They were completely ignored. When they finally wrote a public letter to Ramsay MacDonald, the Prime Minister, um, MacDonald's response was to say, this is a matter for some small government department, and I see what you're trying to do. You're trying to bring down this government. This is simply a political ploy. And this was, again, a constant refrain Everyone who criticizes anything that goes on in the Soviet Union was simply doing it because they were hostile to socialism. Uh, once again, the same thing we would hear maybe again talking about Venezuela. Just to go back to a, a bare basic on this, but you say denialism about it, but what was the reason for the Labour Party not criticizing their Russian counterparts? They could see that there were certainly things which were not working in Russia, but they were so keen for the socialist utopia to be built Where? in Russia as an example for the world, to see that the theory worked. They felt their primary role as fellow socialists, as brother socialists, was to support rather than to criticize. And that remained a dominant and constant theme. With an aim to do what? With an aim, obviously, to prove that it could be done because they had their own ambitions for the UK. Their own ambitions for the UK, they felt, could be brought in in a slightly different way. They had, for many years, the idea that they could bring in a socialist revolution, and they spoke of it as a socialist revolution by what they call constitutional means through Parliament. Um, but at the same time, they were always dealing with this paradox and never quite, never quite addressing it publicly, that the only way they could do what they wanted to do was to bypass Parliament, and they wrote about the possibility of bypassing Parliament, um, uh, was by compulsion, uh, was by the forceful expropriation on which they were explicit of the wealth of other people. The Labour Party published a, a book in 1911, again in the mid-20s, and then again in the, mid, the early 30s. They republished it each time. And, and that book by um, a guy called Fred Henderson said, you know, be under no illusion whatsoever our goal is to expropriate the expropriators. We plan to nationalize the land. We plan to take what the ruling class has for the working class. It's very, very explicit. Um, near the start of your book, you very movingly describe your own travels uh, to see some of this. What, when did that start? Where did you go? I started to travel in Russia in about 2000. And in fact, I was working with a group of people who were helping to rebuild the Russian church after the fall of communism, recognizing that of the central institutions there are within society, the church needed to be particularly strengthened as they were trying to rebuild the country. And, and the church has come under considerable pressure and harassment since. So I went over, and then through a chain of events, I ended up by making some contacts with some people up in this city, which is the northernmost city in the world, uh, 300 miles above the Arctic Circle in a straight line straight up from Afghanistan. Extraordinary place, absolutely in the middle of nowhere, and it was founded entirely as a group of labor camps. 
Um, I went up there actually to work with people in the churches there to visit and to do some speaking. And in the course of that, I'd, I'd been reading more and more about the history. Um, and I, I, they took me around the ruins of the camps, ruins which I'm told have now been raised. And uh, you may have seen in my book the most extraordinary uh, building I've, we found, you know, because that many years and that far up, a lot of the wood is rotted and stuff, but was this concrete block in the middle of a rubbish dump. And it was the old... Um, it was the old punishment block in a punishment camp, so it was the worst of the worst. And the refinement of torture and brutality that was put into the design of that, the, 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 the complexity with which someone had thought, this is how we will torture people. One, one cell was completely dark, and people would be locked in there behind two doors, and it was, it was, it, it was no larger than a toilet cubicle with a seat that went down, and you weren't allowed, I know, because of the many memoirs that I've read, you weren't allowed to, to, to lie down during the day. You had to stand up all day long. Another one, which was a hot room. And then there were, there were, open, um, there were open cells. Now, the temperature there goes down to minus 50. It, it, it's, it's, it, permafrost is 500, 300 meters deep, something like that. It's, this is the Arctic. Those cells had no roof and the doors were studded on the inside so that whoever was locked in those cells could not bang on the doors to summon the guards to get left out. And I know from other stories that what happened to prisoners is that when they were in some camps where they were sent to punishment cells, they were sent there to be killed and to die slowly as a deterrent for other people. And I think it was a, it was a profound experience for me seeing something like that. And so I came to this whole subject from the point of view not of a labor historian or a political historian or whatever else. I knew, I'd by then read extensively prisoner memoirs of the city that I was going to. Um, I knew the story of the tens of thousands of people who'd been sent to this city, which was, it, it was virtually the same as a Soviet Dachau. You know, um, it, it was not a death camp. It was a prison camp, but the, the conditions were brutal. Uh, the graveyards were full. People died of malnutrition. They were shot um, wantonly by guards. And um, the experience of seeing all this and knowing the inside story is what made me angry to see what in their political theory meanderings British socialists were dismissing and making light of even though these stories were coming out, even though the news was coming out of what was going on in this country, there were people who were prepared to discount that. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't just a theoretical issue. For me, seeing what happened on the other side with Russian friends, sitting around tables where you would find a third to half the people had a grandparent or a great uncle who had been repressed or had disappeared or whatever else. This was their current experience to sit there and, and, and see this and then see that people had just dismissed it really was what drove me to write because there was an anger behind that. I'd seen the consequences of what they had dismissed. You say, by the way, that the, um, 
that one of the camps you visited had been raised since then. Who would it have been raised by? The Russian government are not at all happy today to have that part of its history revealed. They are manipulating history. They're manipulating um, history books. Uh, I have simply heard by rumor that this building no longer exists. I don't know for sure, but I know that elsewhere um, signs of the repression are being removed. Um, those who are still recording and tracking that part of history for the future experience intense harassment. Memorial, which is the big organization in, in, in Moscow and St. Petersburg, have had uh, FSB, KGB raids. They're, 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 they keep now their database abroad because their computers have been seized. In the area that I was working, working on, that my book tells a story of, up near Akhangelsk and the White Sea, there is a local historian there who has been trying to trace the story of the Volga Germans, um, a group of Germans who were brought into Russia uh, under Catherine the Great and then were, were repressed en masse by Stalin and sent up to these camps. He has been tracing their story, and in the process, the Russian authorities have been so displeased with him, he is now um, in, uh, uh, awaiting charges in court of... Um, child molestation or, 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 or something like this, completely trumped up. And this is what happens now to historians in Russia because, of course, with the revolution, but in any case, the resurgent Russian nationalism, Putin is trying to dictate how they see the past. So in, in Russia, um, you will find many, many, um, many, many examples of the state really hammering people hard if they want to dig into this. Earlier this year, there was a, a poll, I'm sure you saw, of uh, opinion in Russia asking who people thought was the greatest figure of all time. And Stalin once again came top. Um, if there were a concerted effort today to cover over the concentration camps of Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler were being voted the greatest German of all time, there would be attention paid to this. Why do you think so little attention is paid to the Soviet barbarism? It's, it's a really fascinating subject. I think, I think for years we were so ambivalent in this country or so divided in this country about our attitude towards Soviet communism in general, Stalin in particular, and now even Putin, now even Putin. I, mean, I remember trying to talk to people in Parliament back in 2004, 2005, and say, listen, you really do need to see that what's going on there is developing very, very alarmingly and is dangerous. And, and the response I remember getting was, was, surely everything is okay there now. We took our eye off the ball with the fall of communism um, and assumed completely incorrectly that if you just took a, a, a away what was going on there, Russian society would morph automatically into some kind of liberal democracy. Um, it, uh, it was never going to happen, and it was short-sighted to think that it would do. The central institutions of a really healthy society were completely missing. They spent 80 years having their whole moral fabric destroyed 
by the relativism of communism, which people in this country simply do not realize. They, they, they think that Soviet communism and now basically Russian nationalism, its successor over there, they think that, um, they think that underlying all that, there's some basic agreement on some form of Judeo-Christian moral basis. You know, murder is wrong, theft is wrong, cheating and lying is wrong, and things like this. Um, that was never, never um, a, a concept that Trotsky and Lenin ever agreed with. And in fact, you know, they, they, they're on record as saying, um, uh, we will lie to whoever we need to lie to if it serves the interests of the proletariat. Uh, murder is not murder when it comes to killing the members of the oppressing classes. They turned all that on their head, and, and British Labour, right the way throughout the, the, the interwar years, never really grasped that. They were extraordinarily naive. They never really saw that. Um, but I'm getting slightly off your question, which is, is why, why are we so unalarmed by uh, the, the, the idea that now Stalin would be seen as a hero? I think, I think people are left bewildered today by the ability of one state's propaganda to persuade people the opposite of what we know is the truth. I don't think people have an answer to it. I mean, we're seeing this everywhere, where truth is really history, is really um, whatever any particular ruling regime would like to make it. Wasn't it Churchill who said... Um, History is written by the victors. I think it was. And in, in Putin's Russia, Putin and his party are the victors, and they write the history. And Stalin, of course, is being, is being, re, is being reworked. The Stalin narrative is now that he is the great builder of the nation. And, of course, you, you, the, thing is, the thing is you look to Westerners, to Western socialists, and you see bizarrely, you know, people like Seamus Milne went on record as saying that, um, yeah, it was certainly it was absolutely despicable that so many people died in Soviet Russia, but Stalin rebuilt the industry or built industry and modernized the country and, and everything like this, regardless of the fact that I suspect that every nation in the world experienced that emotional, uh, that, uh, that economic uplift over those years. So Stalin was not responsible for it. And, of course, then you just get Diane Abbott saying exactly the same thing about Mao as she did famously on TV a while back. Well, you know, OK, but it wasn't all that bad. The idea that anyone would say that about Hitler. You know, when he got the trains to run on time and he managed to build some really nice buildings and, 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 and he helped the German steel industry. It's that, that we, you get to the point where you actually have to realize that people cannot be persuaded some things by logic the truth of some things by logic. And I, I find that in some ways a very disconcerting concept that the, 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 the disillusionment of labor over Soviet communism, and for some people that disillusionment never came, but the disillusionment only came as a result of what the Soviets did, not as a result of what anyone did in order to try and disabuse British socialists of their view. 
my my thoughts are that because Ackley and Bevan had been in the wartime cabinet and had been privy to see the full horror of what had gone on with the Soviet holding back uh, when Warsaw was massacred and wiped out, um, all of the issues over Katyn, and there's another point of labor blindness, which I could go into, but I'm weaving off my subject. Um, Atlee and Bevin saw through it because they had, they had experience of what Stalin was doing. Uh, but I don't see, I don't see that, that, that people are able to be, to be enlightened by argument. And I think the last election seems to be proof. Everyone was, why on earth will people not be convinced that Jeremy Corbyn is a supporter of Hamas? He's this, he's that, he's everything else. And, and, and for most people, it was surely the logic and the truth is enough to convince people. And then we have to realize that people are not convinced by logic and truth. Often they are actually convinced by their own utopian ideals. We want a communitarian, nice, friendly society, and we will invest in anybody who says they're going to produce that. We will invest our hopes, and then our hopes will become so invested in that that actually we will not, we won't dare, we won't dare rein back from that. Um, uh, you know, the, this, the, the story isn't there of the, the, the cult who believed in, um, in, uh, spacemen and and they all announced that 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 the spacemen would come come back and destroy the earth on one particular Thursday or Friday and and they all gathered ready for this and then the spacemen didn't come and then they said they've given the world another chance and in fact it redoubled the cult's efforts to evangelize and to recruit um, because they had invested too much in it and uh, yeah um, I suppose finally the um I mean, it's decades ago now that, that the communist dream was described as the god that failed. You're saying it's alive and well. I believe it. It very much is alive and well. And I find it uncanny the way that history seems to be growing in circles and repeating itself. I mean, uh, Ramsay MacDonald gradually, when faced with the responsibilities of government as a prime minister... Um, Labour Prime Minister for two successive governments, their most successful orator, their hero, reality gradually dawned on him, and the party dumped their most successful leader, who had led them to their only two uh, victories, their most eloquent speaker, the hero of the party, dumped him in order to go way, way, way further left. Does that not sound like Tony Blair? Exactly the same. On the other hand, history doesn't repeat itself in that it really looks as if people are being seduced by Corbynism, and therefore I don't know that the outcome's the same. I, I, I was asked by a reporter in The Independent back in February, March, what I thought the future for the Labour Party was in the light of this, and I thought, OK, I've seen history and I can see it all happening again. I said, absolute gloom and doom. The Labour Party's finished. I wasn't right. Great, great. Can we, can we ask some of these? I yeah. mean, ask them in your own way, I think. Uh, yeah. But it's just, it's just good if we can... I'm, I'm, I, I'm just rambling, you see, because no, I'm slightly no, rambling. No, no, I'm no. Sorry. Today there isn't a school child in Britain who doesn't know about the victims of fascism. 
the story is very different with the victims of communism. Why do you think that is? Because uh, there are a number of reasons. First of all, there were no press cameras when the camps closed to take the photographs, which ha are now, um, everybody knows. Uh, the camps, when they were closed under Khrushchev, were closed behind the Iron Curtain. No one knew their story. Those who were sent away, who, who, who were um, let out from the camps, signed away, uh, signed a, a, um, an assurance that they would never, ever speak about their experience. So from their end, everything that went on, went on in silence. There are virtually no photographs at all of any labor camps. Western Europe, another question. It's different. Western Europe, you go to the nations that were suppressed by the Soviets, the Baltic states, Poland, Romania, Hungary, um, you will find in those countries a very, very lively consciousness of the suffering because it's the suffering of their people. It's the suffering of their ancestors. It's why in Poland they are now still fighting over taking down Soviet memorials. I see in the papers the other day. But then you go further and further west and you have fewer people who have actually lived, you have nobody who's lived with the consequence of being under Soviet oppression. And so for that reason, it doesn't stay within the family history of anybody. It stays in the history books. And that's a very different affair. But uh, Counteract Britain has memorials to the Holocaust. Uh, we have no memorials to the victims of the Gulag. We have one memorial, little memorial, opposite the, Albert, uh, opposite the Victoria and Albert Museum. Intensely controversial. Um, the Katyn Memorial is an extraordinary story because the Labour government of the day did whatever it could to try and stop this memorial to the massacre of 20,000 Polish intelligentsia. And um, with the Foreign Office too alongside them, obstructed and obstructed and obstructed. This is what date? This is, we're talking about the 1970s, I believe. I'd have to check the exact date, but the story is absolutely fascinating. Margaret Thatcher gave money privately to it. The, when they dedicated the memorial, it, the, 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 the local council, I think in Kensington, Chelsea, and I can't remember the precise details of where, they refused to allow the monument to be placed so it had to go way out to Gunnersbury or somewhere like that. And um, the key issue was the date that was put on it. And the date that was put on it was the accurate date of when the Russians occupied that country. And therefore, that said, the, the Russians are responsible. And the Labour government of the day would not have it. They would not have this. Now, supposedly, it was because they didn't want to upset the political balance. But they, 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 they backed off. They backed off. Um, earlier on in the 1920s, how was the Labour Party seduced by the Soviet dream? They had been planning, planning, not that, they had been contemplating and theorizing uh, of what a socialist state would look like, uh, in a way ever since Marx. But Hardy wrote in glowing terms about Marx. Yeah, of course we can. Um, Keir Hardy, leader of the Labour Party, in about 1910, wrote in glowing terms 
of Marx and allied himself very, very closely with Marx's vision of the workers' state. Uh, Ramsay MacDonald continued, wrote a long book um, just after the war, about 1919, Parliament and Revolution, in which he clearly, he, he said in as many words, we and the Labour Party are out to do um, what uh, has been done in, in Russia and we thoroughly support what's going on there. And then numerous trades unionists and other, uh, uh, and other um, Labour leaders right through the 20s would continue to reiterate that, um, that, that sense of being allied with Russia. That went right the way through 1946. Um, Harold Lasky, then chairman of the Labour Party, but Harold Lasky, the great politi Labour political theorist who had held this senior professorship in the LSE for years uh, before the war, um, actually gave his speech at the Labour Party conference in which he said, you know, we will now um, extend our hand of friendship to our Soviet brothers and we will do whatever we can to ensure that they are their, their revolution continues to succeed or whatever he called it in a lecture around about that time one of the greatest things that had ever happened in the history of mankind one more thing on today i was going to say yeah, yeah. um sound happens every now and then it's very annoying let's pause it a sec okay if um w w um we appear as a society to have pretty strong anti-fascist uh, uh, antibiotics. Uh, the same doesn't appear to be the case with anti-communism. Uh, to what extent do you see the results of this in, for instance, the Labour Party? I think it's very clear that the British left have been very, very successful to adopt anti-fascism as one of their badges of honor. I think also the worldwide left have been successful in creating this idea that everybody who's anti-communist communist is a um, rabid uh, conservative weirdo hick or whatever. I think in a nutshell, that's where we are now. Um, you think that you would see Mao's red book waved at the dispatch box by a shadow chancellor? No, I didn't. But I think if you had pointed me in the direction of that individual, that John MacDonald, that individual John MacDonald, and given what he has said in the past, I would not have been at all surprised that he had produced something like that. John MacDonald has clearly identified himself with revolutionary socialism. He has commended those who want to, quote, kick the shit out of Tory headquarters, which is an extraordinary statement for someone who aspires to be Chancellor of the Exchequer. He has signed, before he became so well known in the country, he has signed manifestos calling for, uh, essentially calling for class war and for the supremacy of the working class. I mean, there's old-fashioned terms. He was the chairman 
of the Labour Representation Committee. Now, that's a hark back straight to the foundation of the Labour Party and its socialist days. He has unashamedly identified himself with, with Marxism. If you look in his, his who's who entry, um, the destruction of capitalism or something is one of his um, occupations. All good? That's great. Can you use all that? Yes. Yeah. Some of it. Enough there. 35 minutes. All 35 minutes.